Father, bless us with this time of uh, studying your word. Guide us into all the truth that you have for us here. Let men like Samuel and, and others in the scripture this, this evening uh, reflect upon us not only lessons of who you are, but also um, opportunities for us to live in accountability to what we learn. That these men would serve as uh, examples to us, both good and bad, of how you wish those who know you to live. And Lord, we'll take a look at what happened in these two chapters tonight. We'll be considering all that happened from the perspective of what you intend for them to teach us. But Father, I pray that you would also show us in these matters more of who you are so that we can have a richer understanding of the God we serve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the good news is the introduction to Samuel is complete. We're now getting into the career of Samuel as judge, as prophet in Israel. The young man that we saw last week is now fully grown as we go into chapter 4. He's a prophet. He's judging Israel alongside Samson at this same time in history, as we learned earlier. This is during the age of judges in Israel's history. But that age is drawing to a close, not so much here in this chapter, but soon too. Then after that will dawn a new period, the period of the monarchy, the kings. But before that, the seeds of change, the seeds that lead us out of judges and into the monarchy are sown here in chapters four through six, which cover the wanderings of the ark. The ark of God features prominently throughout the book of Samuel, not just in these chapters, and its circumstances are used by Samuel to illustrate a key deficit in Jewish society. Over the past 300 years in Jewish history, the people of Israel have forgotten the power and the authority of the God who brought them out of Egypt and the Lord who rules over them through judges. The days of Moses, the days of Joshua, they are long gone and they are distant memory for the people of this age. In the place of those memories, you now have a people who think only of themselves, their own personal place in the nation, and they look and act virtually no different than the nations that surround them. And if you've read or studied the book of Judges, then you know exactly what I'm talking about, an age in which men did what was right in their own eyes. And it goes from bad to worse. So at the end of that period, things are even worse than they were at the beginning. And we're in about that period of history right now as the first part of Samuel overlaps the last part of Judges. We've already seen with Eli and with his sons last week how desperately wicked men have become, and including the leaders of the nation. They served in the tabernacle in Shiloh, in the sacrificial system that was centered there. But in the way they performed their duties, it's obvious that everything they were doing in those modest buildings were just ritual. It had become nothing but a job. The judges were viewed principally as military captains by the people. The Jewish society as a whole had lost any concept of God present among them. You don't see them talking about that anymore, much less any concept of him ruling. That's where we sit right now in the nation of Israel. Thankfully, for them as well as for us, the Lord is faithful even when we are faithless. And so he is about to reassert himself among his people by means of arguably the most visible evidence of his presence and power within Israel, the ark. When the ark sits in the Holy of Holies, it supports the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God in the mercy seat. Wherever it goes, it is a depiction of the power of God among his people, among the nations. And Israel has long ago stopped seeing it in those ways. And now their understanding of the ark has turned into little more than relic. You'll see that evident in the story today. So the ark is a, a religious relic. It is actually more mystical than meaningful to the people of Israel. And this happens anytime men move from relationship to religion. They've moved from worshiping God to worshiping images. 
And that's the nature of the state of the of the people here as we enter into chapter four. So we're actually going to pick up at the very last verse of chapter three. We ended there last week. And in the chapters that follow four, five and six, you're going to see the people of God acting as pagans while the neighboring pagans recognize the work of the living God. Chapter three, verse twenty one. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Thus, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh. And from there, they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So our transition here begins at the end of chapter three, where we're told the Lord appears to Samuel at Shiloh again. What he means by again is that he appeared to Samuel as a boy back in chapter three earlier. Now the Lord is appearing again. And the sense here is that the Lord continues to make himself known to Samuel as he ministers in the tabernacle. So from that point, we saw with the dream now moving forward into adulthood, there is a sense that God is continually revealing himself to Samuel and Shiloh. And the way he's doing that, we're told is through his word, revealing his word to Samuel so that Samuel could then speak it as a prophet. And over time, we're told in the beginning of verse one, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What we're hearing there is that it became such that Samuel was hearing from the Lord so regularly and transferring that through his work as prophet that it became such that the people of Israel saw his word as synonymous with the word of God. Anytime he spoke, oh, there's another word from the Lord. That's how much God was using Samuel to speak. Meanwhile, the people of Israel are thinking and acting as if the Lord's will is a mystery that no one can penetrate or solve. Look at the end of verse one. Israel's in this conflict with the Philistines and the Philistines are a people group who control the western plains of Canaan. So that western strip of present day Israel up against the sea. They're fierce enemies of Israel in the land. They're a people group that originated from Crete, present day island of Greece. They sailed their way to Canaan from long ago. They were in the land when Abraham got there. But it wasn't until about 100 years before this point in history when the Philistines really began to immigrate and take over large portions of western Canaan. So they've really started to make a name for themselves and grab land over the last 100 years. They live principally in five city-states that were in the western side of the land on the sea plain, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. You may remember that the Lord directed Israel away from this place, away from the Western Plains, when he brought them out of Egypt. If you remember, he says, I'm going to have you go out into the desert rather than to go up into the area of the Philistines. For if they go up into the area of the Philistines, then they will encounter war and they will fear and they will not enter into the land. So he took them around the backside to bring them in over to the Jordan River. That was the plan to avoid the Philistines in the early stages of their incursion into the land. They are strong, warring people. Historically, in fact, Samson spends most of his time as a judge warring with the Philistines because of their strength. They're eventually defeated by Hezekiah and eventually become a people that is unknown to anyone today. But at this point, 
They're still very strong. And the Lord is giving them a measure of success against the people of Israel. And their success is in keeping with a pattern. If you're listening online to the judges study, then you already know what I'm referring to. when I talk about a pattern uh, during this period of history. But if you're not listening to judges, I can sum it up uh, briefly. The pattern that God used in the period of judges, a recurring pattern, was one in which Israel would sin against the Lord in some form of idolatry. And then following that sin, the Lord would respond by punishing Israel at the hands of their enemies. So he'd bring in the Midianites or the Philistines or somebody to put down Israel, put them under oppression for some period of time. And at some point in that process, the people would get the point that they're under punishment from the Lord. They would cry out in repentance, call upon the name of the Lord. He would relent and he would raise up a judge at that point to free them from the oppressor that he had brought in originally. Ultimately, then that judge restores peace to the land for a time. And then we just repeat that pattern again. And every time you turn that wheel the cycle deteriorates. So the people become increasingly pagan the next time. The judge becomes increasingly ungodly compared to his predecessor, even as they serve the Lord's purposes. And after each reinstatement, Israel's ungodliness, nevertheless, their new state is worse than the last time they were installed in. So it's this downward cycle throughout the period of judges. And we're at the end of that cycle. So now during Samson's period, the Lord is chastening Israel with Philistines in that cycle. At the end of verse one, again, you see the Israelite army meeting them in battle near Aphek. This is a town located in the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, just north of Carmel. So if you go to the very northern part of the of the overall land of Israel, way up against the ocean, just north, present day Haifa would be just north of present day Haifa. That's where their battle is taking place. This is the defined northern border of the two people groups. So this was the northernmost border of the Philistines land. And above that was a little stretch of Israel. So they're meeting right at the border on the north. And this battle, as you can tell, was an absolute disaster for Israel. In verse two, we're told that they are defeated with a loss of 4000 soldiers in the battle. And then the people of Israel who are left, the men, limp back to Shiloh after the battle with their tails between their legs. And they begin this, you know, recrimination and review process after action report. How did we get to this place? How did we get to this defeat? They ask the right question, but they get the wrong answer. The right question is, why did the Lord let us lose? They recognize the fact that their fortunes are turning on the Lord's providence here. You win a battle because the Lord lets you win. You lose a battle because the Lord lets you lose. If they lose, well, then it means the Lord has withheld his blessing from them, which then drives the logical question. Why? Why are we not receiving his blessing? Right question to ask. Right question we should always ask under those same circumstances, right? There's no moment in your life that is not under the providence of God. So whatever trial or disappointment comes your way, it's not a bad practice in general to ask this same kind of soul searching question. Now, this is not necessarily to suggest that every time something bad happens to us, we are the locus of control. That, in other words, the fact that something in our life isn't right with God, that's why he decided to bring that hurricane into town and blow over our house. That's a bit too egocentric. Doesn't necessarily mean, though, that there wasn't some good purpose in the event for you. So that you're not saying it was you who caused the need for the hurricane. What you're saying, though, is, God, why did you let the hurricane do what it did to me? What am I supposed to learn from this? Because, you know, the Lord is about accomplishing good in the lives of those that he loves. So there's some good in it. But if you don't ask the right question, you'll be far less likely to come upon the the answer for what is good. So Israel asked this question. Why did the Lord let us lose? Or it's implied, right? But they don't arrive at the right answer. Their answer is to assume that they have not been harnessing the power of God properly. 
They propose as a solution, let's take the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies, let's carry it with us into battle, and they use it essentially as a pagan idol. It's a perfect picture of how unbelieving people relate to the power of God. They see it as mystical, magical, and most importantly, something they can manipulate. The correct answer to the question would have been, why did we lose in battle? Why did the Lord let us lose? Because he's disciplining us for our sin, which would then lead to the next logical conclusion. Therefore, we must repent. And if we do so, then we will be restored in fellowship to him. Because the Lord restores those who come back to him seeking his mercy in accordance with the faithfulness of his covenant. They needed a God-centered solution, recognizing they had a man-centered problem. But instead, they assumed they had a God-centered problem, and they solve it with a man-centered response. God is too far away from the battle, they think. We need to bring him closer to the battle. How do I bring God closer to the battle? Well, go grab that ark thing. That must be the way to do it. In reality, it was not God who was far from Israel. It was Israel who was far from God. That's often been said, if you ever feel like God is far away from you, it's not God who moved. So the real irony of this situation is that they came to Shiloh to get God, and yet they completely missed him. Because the irony here is Samuel tells us God was speaking through him all the time to Israel from Shiloh as their prophet. And he was doing it so much that people just began to associate everything Samuel has said as having come from God. So if the people wanted to know why the Lord let them lose the battle, they would have only had to listen to the word of the Lord that was coming from the very place they went to, Shiloh, from the man who was there. Go back to Shiloh, ask the right question, you get the answer from the prophet. But they don't ask the right question of the prophet. They choose symbols of God over the word of God. And of course, we don't have to look very hard in our own culture to see the same mistake repeated a lot today, countless times, right? Both inside the church and outside. There's a lot of false religions who would claim to be Christian. They've set the word of God aside, parts or all of it. In its place, what do they substitute? They substitute their own views of God, and particularly these relics or their own understanding of what God is, either in physical form or otherwise. They prop that up, and that's what they go after. They treat God like a genie living in a bottle or living in a lamp. Their thinking generally says, if I can come close to these objects of faith, say the right words, make the right gestures, and so on, they appease God. And in the appeasing of God, they gain favor from God. And they repeat the mistakes of the Israelites. Now, that's unbelievers, but friends, Christians can do something very similar, even allowing for their understanding of God in truth and in spirit. Nevertheless, you can fall into this kind of wrong thinking very easily. You can become victims of a thinking that moves to a man-centered view of a relationship with God. And when that happens, you'll notice it because the walk of that Christian will become more superstition than spirit-led. We'll carry crosses, right? we'll cling to them, we'll carry them put them around our necks, not because of jewelry, but because we feel like they're somehow protecting us, hang them from our rearview mirrors. We pause for a moment before a painting of Jesus on the wall somewhere in a church, and we, we reflect on it for a moment or say a prayer or cross ourselves. We will display ornate, unread Bibles on cloth-covered tables that no one's ever turned a page on. Remember that the book's meant to be read, but now we're treating it like an icon. We recite obscure prayers hidden deep in the Old Testament because someone told us they have some kind of mystical power. We bake Ezekiel bread. We keep Jewish festivals in some cases. In other words, we choose to do selectively certain things, saying certain things, singing certain hymns, and only the King James Version, by the way. Don't ever give me anything else. We create these iconic 
forms of God, which we prop up as if they had some magical, mystical, spiritual value all their own, forgetting they're just man-made objects. In every case, what you do when you do those things is you reduce God to something you can control and manipulate to your own desire. And again, many well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians fall into this mindset because no one, I assume, has taken time to explain to them, you don't need any of those things. To the woman at the well, Jesus said, we will neither worship here nor in Jerusalem. We will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, without form, without physical needs to localize our worship. He's in you already. How close do you need to get? How close, how much closer can you be than the spirit of God living in you? So icons replace insight. Relics replace relationship for those who start to see God as something they can control rather than the other way around. So we bend God's will to our needs, or so we think. Instead, we should be bending our will to meet God's standards for holiness and obedience. That's the intention. And those standards, by the way, are made clear where? In the word of God. Everything comes back to the word. That's the contrast Samuel is emphasizing here at the outset. The Lord is ready to speak to his people. He's ready to lead his people. He's put a prophet on the earth for the first time in over 300 years who is hearing from him regularly. And the people blow right past him to grab a wooden box with gold on it and drag it out into a battle. And who's leading the people in grabbing the ark out of the tabernacle? None other than Eli's corrupt sons. And if you were here last week, you know the significance of this. They move the ark from its place and the people are thrilled to have it working on their side. Or so they think. Look at verse five. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Let's notice how the Philistines respond. First, they hear the shouting of the people. The ark coming out causes all of Israel to start this immense shouting But the Philistines, they hear this and they start wondering what is up with the people. So they must have sent spies in, we might assume, to learn what is all this about. And the spies come back, I'm assuming this, and say, you won't believe what just happened. They pulled their ark out. Now, remember, it's been nearly 400 years since they left Egypt at this point. And still, the Philistines remember what the Lord did in freeing Israel from Egypt. It's that pronounced still in the memory, right? They declare, woe to us, because we've never experienced dread like this before, which is ironic because no, the whole reason they're fearful is because it has happened before. And if the Lord of Israel could wipe out a powerful nation like Egypt, then certainly the Philistine army stood no hope. That's their thinking, right? Now, isn't it interesting, as you can see already, the Philistines react with reverence and awe in remembering the great things God has done for Israel in the past, but they are the pagans in the story, Right. These are the ones who should be overlooking the power of God in his true form. And they should be the ones who rely on idols and they should rely on their idols and think nothing of someone else's idol for the most part. Right. And yet they're the ones who respect the power of the living God. Now, granted, they see it in the form of this relic, just like the Israelites do. But they have a sense that, you know, you don't go near with that thing. You don't mess with that thing. Meanwhile, the Israelites are dragging it around like a toy. The people of God have casually invaded the Holy of Holies 
violated God's law, removing the ark against God's instructions. And it's God's people treating Yahweh as a relic while the pagans have the fear of the Lord. Now, again, Samuel's narration, the way he's choosing to narrate this story, is intended to draw our attention to this contrast and also, for this moment anyway, to the story of Jericho. Do you notice the comparisons to Jericho here? Remember in that battle, Israel followed the Lord's orders to take the ark into battle. Who carried the ark? The priests. Where did they take it? Right up to the city, walked around it seven times, and then they shout and the walls fall down. The people here are literally trying to replicate the results of the battle of Jericho by simply carrying out the same recipe that the Lord gave them or something close to it that he gave to them years earlier. That's a classic mistake, not only of unbelievers, but even of believers. In fact, God's people, I think, classically make this mistake the most. And we repeat it all the time. We take the words of the Lord as given to another people in another time. And we appropriate those words for ourselves. And we assume that if what he said to one person in one day happened true for them, then it must be the case that if I take those same words and apply them to myself now, I'll get the same result. We view it as a recipe. It's like watching a rerun on TV. If I back it up, I'll see the same scene play out again. We assume that if we do what God told someone else to do, you get the same result that someone else got. Why? Because it's not God doing the work. It's merely the ritual doing the work. In this case, what they're assuming, of course, is carry the ark, shout like they did in Jericho, walls fall down, ergo, Philistines fall down. People die. Now, that thinking requires that you take the living word of the living God and turn it into ritual and superstition. Folks, God speaks to people for specific intent, for specific reasons, at specific times. And unless he states in his word that what he says is true for all men in all time, we are not free to assume as much. It doesn't work in human beings. I can't say I do to one woman and the rest of the women of the world think they're married to me. It doesn't work that way. Similarly, you can't say God said something to one person and that means the rest of the world now is covered by what he said to that one person. That is not biblical interpretation. I've been asked, does the Bible teach that God is obligated to save an entire household when one family member of that household comes to Christ? And we look at that and we say, well, of course not. We know people all the time that have had one or two members of the family saved and the rest didn't. And no one's ever suggested that God was going to automatically save a whole household just because one person got saved. But there is a teaching, a false teaching that's gone out in some parts of the world that that is, in fact, God's will. And when you ask them to substantiate that teaching, you know where they go? Acts 10 and 11, Cornelius. In that story, of course, Peter is told to go to Cornelius and that Peter is told by the angel, if you go there and you teach this man about the Lord, he and his whole household will be saved. And of course, that happens. Obviously, it was the Lord's intent to do that work. That's why he announced it in advance to Peter, and that's why he chose to do it. All of what happened is exactly as God intended for Cornelius and his family. But that's an example of the same kind of misuse when you say, because he said that to one man in one day, he must mean that for all men of all days. Never mind that our own personal experience defies that, that thinking. Nevertheless, we somehow think it's still true. So the fact that he chose to save one person's family doesn't become a prescription for how he will save all people. Similarly, the fact that the Lord chose to defeat Jericho with an ark and people shouting doesn't mean that's now a method or a prescription for defeating armies. You only get to that thinking when you have removed God from the equation and left everything else behind. The words, the ritual, the patterns, all of that stays intact. Just take God out of the equation. And of course, you have to take God out of the equation if you're going to have this way of thought. 
Because if you leave God in the equation, then you're forced to ask the question, what does God want? Is this what he wants for me? Is this how he intends for me to act? It means you put him back in the point where you have to consider his will, not your own. But if it's my will and not his will that I care about, I'll just take him out of the equation. Now I just repeat ritual. To see the Israelites misusing the Lord's instructions in this way proves to us that they are far from him and they are not accustomed to his word. In verse 9, the Philistines try to shore up their courage. They say, hey, you've got to be tough, guys. Be men. Come on. Otherwise, we're going to lose this battle. This is to make sure that none of us get deceived into thinking that somehow the Philistines' earlier reaction is an indication that they truly do know and worship the Lord. No, they don't. They refer to it as gods, not God. And they clearly think they can still beat him. Any Philistine who thinks they can beat God doesn't know who God is. Self-evidently. So they're going to go into battle. Of course, God wasn't about to reward the Israelites' sin in their removing of the ark and and of propagating this ritual, so he's going to let them fail, right? Of course, verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So once again, the defeat comes. Now, we don't know where this battle takes place exactly, but if you look down to verse 12, you'll see that it had to have been within a short walk of Shiloh. And that means that they didn't get very far from Tabernacle with the ark before they encountered the battle. They fight, they lose, and not a man in Israel could stand, it says that day. Everyone ran. Now, friends, when you run in the midst of battle, you can't defend yourself. You're a sitting duck for anyone who's chasing you. So exactly 30,000 men died in the battle. That number three stands out to remind us who permitted the slaughter. In fact, the magnitude of this loss is far greater than the previous loss, which in itself proves that the Lord was not with the people, right? If you lose more people with the ark than you do without the ark, it sort of says something about the idea of using the ark, right? Also dying in this battle were both sons of Eli. We must assume that they accompanied the ark into the battle after they pulled it out of the tabernacle, maybe because they assumed there'd be this great victory and they needed to be at the front of the line to claim credit for it when it happened. Then they get caught up in the resulting melee and they die. In fact, we can assume that they were the priests who violated the Holy of Holies, which, of course, under the law, the requirement for any who would do that would be death. God didn't take long to bring it about. And also, as you know, this is the fulfillment of what was spoken to Eli, that both his sons would die on the same day. And God has even orchestrated the circumstances of their death so that no one could possibly have reason to debate the justification for God's actions. Because it's not to say he needed any additional justification, of course, but when now you can see what they have done with the ark, no one can stand and say God was unjust and letting them die as a result of what they did, having taken the ark. And I'm pretty sure that there were few tears being shed for them in Israel on this day. More importantly, as we see, the Lord allowed the Philistines to capture the ark. Now, that clearly has to be the Lord at work. The ark and everything that's going on here is under God's providence. But there had to be some particular reason why the Lord was allowing the Philistines to take capture of this ark. He didn't have to make that the outcome. For some reason, he wanted it. Some good reason. So we need to understand what is it that God's trying to accomplish by letting his ark go into their hands for a time. And soon it becomes apparent, beginning with some unfinished business with Eli. Verse 12. Now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, 
What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you've given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. A Benjamite, we hear, survives a battle, and he runs back within a day's walk or run, and he gets to the city, tells the whole city what's happened. The city begins to cry out. He's, he's clearly disheveled. He looks like a defeated soldier. And as the city cries out, Eli, hearing that cry, wants to know the news, and the soldier reaches him eventually. And you would expect that, the high priest, the judge, he would have gotten the news directly to him. Eli hears what's happened. Notice, though, he's particularly worried about the ark. Like a father who lends his prized sports car to a newly licensed teenage son, he's more worried about the car than he is about the son, And in this case. And when the soldier comes and explains what's happened, when he reaches the point about the ark, that's where, of course, he falls backward, we're told. It says here, beside the gate, the gate refers to a multi-chambered entrance to the city inside the wall of the city, and it's not just like a gate like into your backyard. And these walls are high. They had stations on the top where people could stand to defend the city gate and to defend the walls. And then you had underneath, you had some open chambers where people could meet for the city business inside the wall itself. If he's beside the, the gate, that probably means he was up on top, which would make sense. That's where you could see out and maybe watch the battle and see what was going on. It would seem as though his fall was from the top of the wall, not necessarily just like you tipping back in one of your chairs here, although that could have been enough to do it, I guess. In any event, he dies, breaks his neck. Interestingly, Samuel says Eli was old and heavy. Now, heavy would mean the man was overweight, which seems to be a commentary by Samuel on Eli's self-indulgence. And there's an interesting word play here in Hebrew when you see the word heavy. In Hebrew, the word for heavy is kaved. Later in verse 21, we're told the glory of the Lord has departed from the tabernacle, as indeed it has with the ark being removed. So once the ark was removed, the glory of the Lord was not there. So you have kaved for heavy and the word for glory is kavod. Kaved, kavod. So Samuel has juxtapositioned these two very similar sounding Hebrew words in the narrative to make a commentary on Eli's reign as high priest. Eli made himself kaved rather than giving the Lord kavod. In a sense, he made himself heavy rather than giving the Lord glory. But what it's really saying is Eli took the glory for himself, indulging himself rather than using his position to give the Lord glory. So on the same day that Eli lost everything, Israel lost the glory of the Lord. Had Eli not been who Eli was and his sons not been who they were, 
none of the rest of this could have followed. It's a direct result of the judge and high priest of Israel not knowing the Lord and teaching his ways properly through his sons, and the rest of the culture went with them. Not the only ones to be responsible for that, but the Lord is laying responsibility at his feet. Here's one more time for us to remember that the priority in any ministry is to glorify the Lord, not to enrich ourselves or to impress others. You cannot do half of one and half of the other. When you seek to serve yourself, you by necessity stop serving God. He stops benefiting from our service. He stops receiving pleasure in what we do. There's no two ways about it. You can't do some of one and some of the other. We need to apply this standard to those who serve us. If a man or woman is intent on serving themselves instead of serving God, it will become apparent to us sooner or later. When you detect that turn, use discernment. Look elsewhere for spiritual counsel or help them if they're open to it. But so often in my experience, once you can see it plainly, it's it's beyond help. The ego has already made its choice. Notice that Eli reacted, as I said, to the news of the ark, not to the news of his sons. That would seem to confirm for us that Eli was not particularly attached to his sons. And perhaps later in life, he came to realize the kind of sons he had raised. Perhaps he had regrets. Doesn't matter. It's too late. The final episode is his daughter-in-law, who never gets named in this short account. She's just called the woman or Phineas's wife. That in itself tells us it's not really important who she is. That's not the main point in having her included in the story. The point is what's said after the death of the mother and the birth of her son. She's pregnant. She hears the news. The shock of it causes her to go in premature delivery. Josephus reports she gives birth at seven months. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. In giving birth, we're told in verse 20, she dies. So she dies in the childbirth. As she dies, the midwife tells her, you're having a son. She doesn't respond probably because she's already hemorrhaging or not conscious. Then the midwife names the son Ichabod, which means literally no glory. In Hebrew, reflecting the departure of the glory from the tabernacle, and it has indeed departed. And interestingly, the Shekinah glory of God will not return to the Holy of Holies until Solomon builds the temple and returns the ark into the Holy of Holies. That's how long it's going to be gone. Though this girl speaks correctly when she says the glory of God is gone, in a sense, she's also repeating the error of Israel, though in that she is associating the presence of the Lord in Israel with the physical object, the ark. Yes, the glory is gone, certainly, but she can't say that the Lord is absent Israel because that artifact has been removed. It's like those who believe the Lord only lives inside the church building. Shh, don't run. We're in the house of the Lord. No, you're just in a building. Don't run anyways. It's not because the Lord's there. You're going to run into him. It's, it's just that it's just a building. She's, in a sense, saying what the rest of the city was saying, which is they lament the departure of God and now a feeling of being far from him, of him now having left. But as it's been said, if you feel far from God, it's not because he's moved, it's because you've moved. Well, the Lord is still with them. Israel has departed from the Lord. And they're now suffering the trial of a people who become so distant from God that they only know him as a relic rather than as a living presence among them. That's in stark contrast now to what you're going to see happen with the new owners of the ark, The pagans who, unlike the apostate Israelites, they are about to have a very personal encounter with the living God. I'm going to read all of chapter five as one. Verse one. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of God of Israel around. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Well, this chapter doesn't require a lot of explanation, although I'm sure there's a lot we could say about it. In summary, the ark goes on a tour of the Philistine cities. It moves from near Shiloh, and you have a map. If you came in late, there's some more up here if you'd like to have a copy. So it starts somewhere near Shiloh, and it must get into the Philistine territory quickly. That would have been their first concern. So you have to imagine a pretty direct route into their land. So they go west, get into their land, and then they start moving down toward their city. It moves from Shiloh past Aphek to the sea plain, then down the Via Mars, which is the main road that adjoined the sea, and eventually finds its first stop of the tour in Ashdod. The Ashdodites decide that this war booty is important enough that they want to display it in the temple that they have dedicated to their god, Dagon. Dagon was the fertility god of the Philistines. He's pictured as part man, part fish. In fact, the word dag in Hebrew means fishy part. He was the god of grain and was responsible for giving a bountiful harvest. That's why he was a fertility god in that sense. But like most false gods, he originated among people in Mesopotamia, which is sort of the home ground of Satan, and it came eventually to the Philistines. When the ark is placed in Dagon's temple, overnight the Lord knocks Dagon over so that he is prone face down facing the ark. And to lie face down is a position of worship. Now remember these idols, particularly the kind that we put in a temple of this sort, you're talking about a large object, you're talking about solid stone, usually 10, 15, 20 feet tall. I mean, something large enough that you can't explain it laying on its face easily, not without an earthquake or something. And, and they walk in and, and here you find your God face down worshiping the ark. No small matter, no small concern. So you're shocked to find your God worshiping another God. And of course, in a huge bit of irony, they have to set their God back in place. If your God falls down and you have to pick him up, not a God. And of course, and this is the humor of God reflected in the way he lets things play out, right? He lets them have a second shot at it, just to make a point. And sure enough, the next night he's down. Now, now this time he takes the head and the hands off the statue. They've been cut off by how it fell on the threshold, sort of snapped on the threshold of the, of the, tab, of the temple. Those parts being removed in that culture, they had strong symbolism attached to hands and head. Head was authority. Hands were power. The hand of God, you know, you even hear it in the language, right? So he has no power, no authority when it comes to the true living God. And it says from this point forward, the priests and everyone else notice this very interesting little footnote. They won't step on the threshold anymore, like step on a crack, break your mother's back. Don't, don't step on the threshold, break Dagon. And when people make up rules like that, we call that what? 
superstition. What it's doing is reinforcing the concept of superstition as the driving force in the religious mind here of the Philistines. And yet it's exactly what was propelling the Israelites in doing what they were doing. It's all superstition instead of a relationship, instead of any kind of truth. Now, at this point, we begin to see the Lord acting again in the narrative. This is really where you see his work begin again. Up till this point, of course, he's been there. It's been understood that he's been behind everything that's happened. But he's been doing it in a very subtle way behind the scenes, withholding his blessings from Israel, removing the glory from the tabernacle. You haven't really seen him actively working, apart from speaking, obviously, through Samuel. But you haven't seen him actively working in all these other circumstances until now. Now he begins to take his anger out on the Philistines. They get the brunt of it. In Ashdod, we're told he brings a plague of tumors against the people. And the Hebrew word for tumor comes from a root word that means to swell. And it could mean almost any kind of swelling. But in verse 9, the Hebrew word for broke out, in my English Bible it says they broke out, that's a word that has a very specific meaning. It refers to the groin area specifically. So that's where you get, and some of your English Bibles may say this, uh, that's where you get people saying that this was a plague of hemorrhoids against the people. That's our best guess for what kind of terrible, uncomfortable, painful swelling can happen in the groin area that people would be so disturbed by that they would cry out, don't let that thing get near us, it'll kill us. But whatever it is, it's a serious problem. Somehow the leaders of the city determine that this is the curse resulting from having the ark. They put two and two together. And so they quickly come to the obvious conclusion, ark's got to go. And rather than send it back to Israel, this is the interesting thing, and I, I, I find this to be the funniest part of the story, of course. Instead of just saying, well, just send it back to where it came from, they decide in their caring way, let's send it to our fellow Philistines down the road. So they said, let's send it to Gath. Yeah, Gath. Now, it's the closest city from Ashdod. So the next direct route would be to over to Gath. So they say Gath is deserving of this wonderful war treasure. Very quickly, the citizens of Gath likewise find it difficult to sit down. And so the ark is off again to its third stop, Ekron. The news of the ark now is preceding it. It didn't take very long, right? So even as the ark is being delivered to Ekron, the people are already lamenting that it's their turn. And they say it's come to kill us. Now, friends, this must be one heck of a case of hemorrhoids if they're fearing death. But in fact, we're told there's a deadly, quote, deadly confusion in Ekron. And that would suggest a great panic that leads people to die at each other's hands. I think that's what it's intended to suggest. Literally panic to the point of people killing each other. That would seem to be what it's talking about, or either that or God is supernaturally producing death among the people, which could happen. The city is dissolving into chaos and anarchy, it would appear, all because of this ark's arrival. And those in the city who aren't killed one way or another, they are getting the tumors and they suffer. So once again, you see a a master of contrast here in Samuel, the way he's orchestrating his narrative. In chapter four, you have the nation of Israel trying to use the ark to access the power of God for their own purposes, right? They want nothing more than the ark to do something miraculous whenever it you know, is taken out and portrayed or paraded around. And God didn't play along, right? It was just a hunk of metal and wood. Did nothing for them. It could not replace God. It, Israel could not repackage God to fit their own desires. And so the Lord hides himself. The people stumble, 30,000 die. And it reflects Israel as a culture of evil, sinful desires, virtually identical to pagans. Then you have, as a contrast to that, chapter 5, you have the Philistines. Now, they are the pagans here. They are the ones who would give little regard for this box. To them, it's just a piece of war booty, something that they can parade around and show that they are stronger than the Israelites. But yet, they treat the ark 
with reverence and awe. Now, they do so out of the necessity of self-preservation, right? But nevertheless, they have that fear such that even before the ark shows up, people are worried about it. So they're approaching it as power from God and they're fearful of it. Now, for a pagan people, he shows himself by bringing judgment to the pagans in this degrading way. Uh, When they try to incorporate it into their pantheon of gods, he shows I'm not going to be controlled by you pagans any more than I was controlled by those Israelites. The Israelite wanting me to show myself, I hid myself, and you didn't expect me to show up, and now I'm showing myself. If the people want to access the power of God through a relic, God says, all right, here's what it looks like when you access my power through my instruments, but in the wrong way. I don't perform as you expect. I don't bow to your needs. I don't let you control me. The Jews expected victory. They get defeat. The Philistines expect a blessing because they possess the Ark of Israel and they got a curse instead. No man can own or manipulate God. His will be done, not ours. That's where Samuel leaves us at the end of chapter five. His point, of course, is a case study of how evil and self-absorbed the nation of Israel has become, how much they lack strong leadership, how little they know of the word of God. And what has God to do with his people when they're in this state? And Samuel is driving us toward the solution that God's going to provide. Father, I ask that you forgive us at times past when we have um, perhaps unknowingly reduced you to something mystical or superstitious. Perhaps, Father, we thought that if we just repeated some recipe that others have, have been given in the past, that you would respond as you did in the past. And Father, we see now out of your word how in thinking like that, we've, we've attempted to reduce you and diminish your glory and to um, control you for our own purposes rather than to worship you and rather than to obey and, and uh, stand in awe of your power. And Father, I thank you for the reminder that that's the God we serve and that's how we must approach. And that, Father, you are uh, good and gracious and merciful to um, forgive us when we do those things and to restore us. But you ask us, Father, to come to you through your word so that we can know who you are truly and so that we can be taught out of these bad things and into the bright, the right ways, Father, into the light. So help us, Father, through this study to be that kind of follower and to show others the same truth and not to be arrogant or prideful in how we explain it to others who may not have made this trip yet with us, but be patient and kind with them and teach them as you have taught us and help us model the right thing in all we do, Father. Thank you for a night of study and for a week to come when we can put it to work and bring us back next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.